To start out this morning, I know you're already in the book of Acts, and it's where we're going to spend our time, but I actually want you to keep your finger there, and I want you to turn over to Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, and I want to show you something. Okay, uh, you ever go to the movies, and when you're waiting for your movie, there's a preview, and that preview is designed to whet your appetite for that movie that, that you're going to see later, right? And it's kind of like they, they take some of the best scenes and they kind of give away a little bit of the plot and it gets you excited about, oh, I'm going to come back and see that movie in a few, few months. Here's what Jesus is doing in Matthew 16. He's giving a preview of the book of Acts. Okay, are you ready? Here we go, Matthew chapter 16. And this is cool. This is a cool passage for me because I actually got to teach on this passage in Israel in the place that Jesus would have taught this in Caesarea Philippi. It was really a special moment. But in Matthew chapter 13, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verse 13. It says, now when Jesus came, oh, can I pray really quick? I totally forgot to do that. Man, I need to pray. Lord, uh, I need your mercy this morning, God. I need your grace, God. We don't know what we're doing here. Um, we really don't. I don't know what we're doing. We're just, we're just ready to say yes to what you want, to who you bring. Um, we're ready to say yes, God, to, to what, what you have in store for us, God. And we want to be moldable this morning, not only just in our church, Lord, but in our own personal lives. Uh, we want to listen this morning. We want to have open listening hearts, not just open listening ears. We want our hearts to be softened, hearts to be changed. God, every one of us in this room come from different backgrounds. Uh, everyone in this room is probably having a different emotion right now. Um, some maybe uh, are terrified and some maybe are comfortable. Wherever we're at, would you meet us there? And would you bring us to you? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What a great question. What's the word, guys? Who, what are people saying about me? What are people saying that I am? There's a lot of buzz at this time about Jesus, right? Jesus wants to know what they're hearing. What's the PR? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, those are all people that were, were said to have come in, in, in the Old Testament. So these people were going to come. These prophets were supposed to come. This is the different views on who Jesus was. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And then the, in the, the room, they're probably outside, but it just got real intense for them. Because it's easy to talk about what other people think of Jesus, right? It's easy to say, well, this church, that, and these people, that. But when, when the question goes on to you, who do you think Jesus is? They kind of get a little stiff, kind of get a little nervous. Said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter pipes up. That's what he does. He's the voice, right? He pipes up. And he goes, you are Christ. What is that? Messiah. You're the one that the Old Testament said was coming. You're the guy. You're the guy we've been waiting for. The son of the living God. That's a pretty clear, messy, or pretty, pretty clear messianic explanation Peter gives. So clear that we know Peter was not responsible for it. There's no way Peter knew what he was saying. Peter's a, he's a fisherman. Okay, now he knows, he knows some of, about Judaism. He knows some about the Torah. But he doesn't understand this kind of a statement about who Jesus is. He just rattles it off. You are Christ, the son of living. This is like a, this is like a seminary level um, expression of who Jesus is in the Old Testament. And Jesus says in verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, you never would have thought of that in a million years. You're too thick to think of that. But my Father who is in heaven. In other words, the Father told you that. And, and, you, and you might not even have realized he was telling it to you. It just came out of your mouth. You ever had that before? You say something and you're like, well, I didn't even know that. 
It's, it's like God just speaking through you. And I tell you, Peter, listen to this. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's he talking about? What's the rock? Is it Peter? It's not Peter. And Catholics think it's Peter. That's why they have the Pope. It's not Peter. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying in any, in any stretch of the imagination that he will build his church on Peter. <laughs> Praise God. Okay? He's saying he will build his church on the proclamation that just came out of the mouth of Peter. And what was that proclamation? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That will be the foundation upon which Jesus will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. Now, that doesn't mean that they're, we're going to storm the gates of hell. What that means is that death is not going to stop this. Gates of hell is just a, it's just a, it's just a symbol for, for death. It's saying that Jesus' death isn't going to stop this, that the disciples' death isn't going to stop this, that the first generation Christians' deaths aren't going to stop this. It's going to be built. It's going to be built on the proclamation of who Jesus is. Verse 19, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What is that speaking of? Power. He's going to give Peter power. Peter's going to have access to the power of the kingdom of God in the natural realm. Isn't that crazy? And whatever you lose on, loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Isn't that interesting? Why? It's just a preview. Jesus is just peeling the curtain back to what is going to come. Well, what's going to come? The church will be built upon the foundation of the proclamation of Christ's deity and his kingship. And the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. It will be built. Amen. This is the preview of coming attractions that we read in the book of Acts. This is what we get to study. Acts is the, is the fulfillment, the beginning of the fulfillment of what Jesus said was going to happen. And guess what? It happened exactly like he said it would. Now think about this. Christianity, and I don't think anyone would argue this. Christianity is the single most influential movement in human history. It just is. Christianity has influenced not only the West, but the entirety of the world. Okay, one guy who was a poor peasant carpenter from Galilee, which is like White City, okay? Um, nothing against that, but you know, or what are we saying, guys? Like Cape Junction? Like he's like from Cape Junction, you know? And, and his, his little group of, of sort of misfit toys, you know, like, like a random group of people, um, they only ministered for three years. And then he was state-sponsored executed. That movement, that message, has been the most influential message in the entirety of human history. Why? How? How is it possible? How is it possible? I mean, the guy was murdered. He only had three, he only had a three-year campaign. He didn't even have time to build a base. There's no social media back then. This happened in, in the Middle East. I mean, in, in terms of the Roman Empire, Israel is nothing. It's nothing. It's Hickville. How does that happen? It happens by the Holy Spirit. It happens because power came upon this mission. It happened because it was, it was, it was the, the winds or the sails of the gospel were filled with the winds of the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, okay? So Acts chapter one, here we go. Acts chapter one. If I get close to eleven ten, and I'm not like really, really close to being done, Throw something at me, okay? We have to be done by then. So I'm going to go quickly. Acts chapter 1. 
We're not going to cover all the material in this chapter, but I had Matt read it, read it so that we're, available, we're aware of it. We're going to get through the first 11 verses. Acts chapter 1. A little bit of an introduction to the book of Acts. As we probably know, it was written by a man named Luke. Who was Luke? Uh, we actually talked about him last week a little bit. Luke was a physician. He's a doctor. Uh, he was Paul's personal physician. Paul needed a doctor because Paul was always getting beat up. Right? And the guy, everywhere, everywhere we went, he was getting beat up. Um, and he was getting thrown into prison because um, the gospel just, uh, it's powerful and the enemy hates it. So Paul needed a doctor with him all the time. If you need a doctor with you all the time, you got health problems. Okay? And actually, a lot of people believe Paul did have health problems. A lot of people think that when he talked about his thorn in the flesh, he was talking about a physical ailment. And, and Luke was, was needed. Uh, Luke was a missionary. He followed Paul on most of the journeys. He comes into the picture in the second missionary journey. We learned about that last week. Philippi. Uh, when they're in Troas, I'm trying to figure out where to go. And uh, Paul has this vision. They end up going to Macedonia. Luke joins the team. And we know that because um, the, the author of, of Acts starts using the word us. He starts saying us, 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 which means Luke joined the, he joined the party. Okay? Uh, Luke was, a, was the physician to, to Paul. He was a gospel writer. He, Luke, he wrote the, the gospel Luke. Okay? Um, he wrote the gospel Luke. Acts is a part two. It's the second volume in Luke's um, authorship. Uh, Luke actually wrote a pretty large chunk of the New Testament. Isn't that interesting? Um, Luke was, was, was a missionary. He was also a Gentile. He was a Gentile. He was actually from Macedonia. He was from Philippi. Isn't that cool? He was from Philippi. That's where he was from. Um, so that's who wrote the book. Uh, then we learned seven quick things. Jot these down or actually have them on your notes there if you want. Um, seven quick things about what Luke is writing when he writes the book of Acts. What Luke is writing. First thing he's writing is a history. Look at verse one. He's writing a history. The first book, talking about Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay. Um, what is Luke writing? Flip over really quick. Keep your, um, keep your finger in, in Acts and flip over to the book of Luke, which is the first volume in, in uh, Luke's uh, two-volume series. Okay, And listen to a little bit more of a, a, a clear introduction of why Luke is writing this. He says this in verse 1 of Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, listen, to write what? An orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So why is Luke writing Acts? He's writing it so that this guy Theophilus, who we know very little about, but he was probably some kind of an influential Roman citizen, um, so that Theophilus can have certainty about the person, nature, and work of Christ. You know, it's, it's funny. Like, a lot of people talk about Christianity like it's just this blind faith. It's just this, like, you just need to believe it. Um, yes and no. There is a historical Jesus. We believe in a historical Jesus. No matter what National Geographic says every Christmas about how it turns out it's all a hoax, uh, it's not. Okay? Uh, this book has been attacked more than any book in the history of humanity and it has stood its ground because there is a historical Jesus. And what Luke is doing is he is writing down the facts for Theophilus that Jesus really was alive, that he really did resurrect, that he really did ascend, that the Holy Spirit really did come, that there was a movement that went out throughout um, the, the, the Middle East and all the way to the ends of the earth because Theophilus can believe in a real Jesus, a historical Jesus, not an idea, not a feeling, not Santa Claus, not the Easter Bunny. There's a difference. This is a real person. And, and Luke, painstakingly, he's actually an intellectual. He's an academic. He's a doctor. 
He's a really good historian. He writes down the details very clearly, and he does his research, and he talks to eyewitnesses, and he actually records the reality of the historical Jesus so that this Theophilus and all of us can benefit from that reality. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? This is who, this is what Luke's writing. So he's writing a history. Secondly, he's writing an apology. Uh, and I don't mean by apology, I'm so sorry. Um, apology, if, if you're familiar with that word apologetics, it's actually from the, the Greek word apologeo, uh, and it's a defense. So Luke is also writing a defense. A defense against what? Well, at this point, when, when Luke writes Acts, um, uh, Christianity is beginning to, to, to become persecuted by Rome. Christianity used to live under the umbrella of Judaism. Um, so they let Christianity function because it was considered to be a branch of Judaism. And then the Jews started going, no, 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 we don't like that. They're not under our umbrella. And so persecution started. So a lot of people think that uh, Luke is actually writing an apology, a defense um, to Rome, that Christianity is actually not a threat to them in any ways. He, he, it's really not a threat to Rome in any way. So the third thing he's writing is soteriology. I'm using some big words because I just really want you to think I'm smart. Um, and that's the reality. No, a soteriology is the study of salvation. Okay, Luke, or Acts is a study of salvation. Um, listen to what I. Howard Marshall uh, says. He says, salvation is the central motif in Lucan theology. That's anything written by Luke. Both in the gospel, in which we see it accomplished, and in the Acts, in which we see it proclaimed. So really, Acts is about salvation. It's about how this Theophilus can be saved by the real historical Jesus. Um, it's an ecclesiology, number five. We get to see the birth. Uh, that ecclesiology means the church. Ecclesia is the Greek term. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. Acts is a study of the church, how it started, its birth, its infancy, um, and, and how it began to grow up. And then we, we read Acts through the lens of the epistles because Paul actually writes letters to these people. Um, and we actually realize that there was a lot going on in terms of maturity. A lot of people read the book of the Acts and they go, oh, man, we should just be like them. They had it all figured out. <laughs> no, no, no. These guys were jacked just like us. Read the book of 1 Corinthians. These guys were getting drunk on communion. Um, there's dudes sleeping with their stepmoms. Um, they, they, they were gluttonous with the communion table. They weren't leaving any food left for everybody else. I mean, Acts was, they were just broken as we are. Sin was just as prevalent as it is now, okay? It was all jacked up. But what we're seeing is we're seeing the birth and the adolescence and the maturing of the church with the movement of Christ. Um, and so as we read Acts, you see a lot of miraculous things. But when you read the epistles, you realize these miraculous things happen in the midst of really broken people, which I'm really thankful for because I'm really broken. And I want to see miraculous things happen, but I'm also really broken. Okay, so those two things coexist. Um, Acts is also a prophecy. Look at verse one in the first book, Theophilus. I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and what teach. Jesus began to do and teach. Isn't that interesting? So the Gospels isn't the end of what Jesus did. It continues on. Acts isn't about the apostles. Did you know they named it wrong? It's not Acts of the Apostles. I don't know who called it that. It was some old fathers of the faith or whatever. It's not the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of Christ continuing through lots of ordinary people. And it's not only through the apostles. In fact, most of the best missionaries in the book of Acts were apostles. They were just normal people. Okay? Um, Philippi brought, or Philippi, um, Philippi, Philip brought the gospel to Samaria. He wasn't, he wasn't a, um, uh, an apostle. Um, so it's, it's really interesting, actually. It's, just, it's, a, it's a prophecy. It's a continuing of Jesus' teaching. And lastly, it's a missiology. That's the study of mission. Um, it's, it's about God's ultimate divine program um, that continues. So that's kind of the nuts and bolts. I know that stuff's kind of boring. But getting into verse 2. That's a little bit of an introduction to the book. By the way, we're going to be in Acts for about six months. Okay? And if you guys want to read, we're going to do about a chapter a week. So read ahead. Okay? So next week, read chapter two. And a week after that, chapter two again, because we're doing two parts. And then chapter three, so on and so forth. Uh, read ahead. Verse two. 
until the day when he was taken up, speaking of the ascension, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So what Luke's doing here is he's telling us where he left off in the last book. He's saying, hey, we left off in the the gospel of Luke. We left off where Jesus had ascended and rose, and now we're picking it up right there. This is where the story is where we punch in. I just want you to notice something that that Luke uh, mentions that Jesus gave commands, speaking of the Great Commission, through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Why did Jesus need to give commands through the Holy Spirit? He's Jesus. Okay, I'm glad you asked that question. It's a very good question. Uh, look, I'm just going to read it to you. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, the author of Hebrews tells us exactly why Jesus did this in the Holy Spirit. He says, therefore, he, being Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or satisfaction for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who were being tempted. What is the author of Hebrews saying? He's saying that Jesus walked by the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean he wasn't God. It doesn't mean he couldn't have accessed his divinity. It means that he set to the side his divinity and lived out of his humanity. Why? Because he had to be the perfect human being and live by the power of the Spirit to show us that we can do that too. To show us that, that, that what it looks like to live according to the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we could live the perfect life as a human and then give us that perfect life. And impute it to us. Put it over the top of our garbage uh, in a broken and sinful life. So Luke, not by accident, mentions that Jesus gave these commands by the Holy Spirit. Um, look at verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. For 40, this is the only place in the Bible we find out that Jesus was walking around in his resurrected body for 40 days. 40 days he was walking around. Now, now why? Why 40 days? Couldn't he just come back once, shown them that he was resurrected and gone to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit and gone with the show? Why 40 days? And why many proofs? You notice it says many proofs? Like, like time and time again, they, he had to prove and prove and prove and prove to the disciples that he was resurrected. Um, here's a little point that you can use if you're trying to argue for the historical of Jesus. Okay. Um, the disciples weren't expecting a resurrected Messiah. They didn't think about that at all. It wasn't on their radar. They didn't have a theology that supported a resurrected Messiah. They weren't expecting a resurrected Messiah. And so much so that Jesus kept having to show up and show up and show up and show up in his resurrected body and show them the holes in his hands and say, hey, it's me. It's me. The guy you followed around Galilee and Judea for the last three years. It's me. I'm here. I'm resurrected. I'm resurrected. I'm resurrected. And they just didn't get it. And it took 40 days and many proofs. Now, the, the reason I think that's a good argument and a good defense for the, the literal resurrection of Christ is because these guys didn't just think of it. They weren't hoping for it. It was, was, wasn't wishful thinking for them. They're like, let's write down that the Messiah was resurrected. They weren't even thinking about it. They had to be convinced. These were rational men. These weren't religious whack jobs. These were rational, blue-collar men and women that were convinced that this guy who said he was God, resurrected from the dead, so much so that every single one of them, besides one, lost their lives in their heads to Rome. Is that crazy? Like these were rational men that were so convinced that Jesus really resurrected, they were willing to give their lives for the gospel. And they weren't hoping for a resurrected king. They got 
And he showed them that through many proofs. It's a really important thing to know. Now notice something too in verse three. Um, he presented himself alive to them after suffering many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about what? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. What is that? What is the kingdom of God? Why is Jesus talking about? Jesus talked about the kingdom of God all throughout his ministry, didn't he? I mean, he talked about it all the time. He talked about it in his life. Why is he talking about it now in his resurrected ministry? He's talking about it because it's the preeminent focus of the Bible. Okay, it's the preeminent focus of the Bible. The kingdom of God is what God has always been up to. We talked about this two weeks ago. Um, but, but God's plan has always been to fill the earth with God-honoring, Christ-exalting, image-bearing, Humanity. That's always been his desire. That's why we see that at the end of the book in Revelation. That's why we see that in the garden. That's always been his desire. And the kingdom of God is wherever God is king. Let me say that again. The kingdom of God is wherever God is king. Now, Jesus is coming to tell them that the kingdom is at hand. Okay, the kingdom is at hand. There's a really good picture of this if you guys are familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, so there's a scene where, you know, you, you start the movie and it's all snowy and everything's cold and it's dark and lame because the witch, you know, she's, she owns the, the land. And Aslan's gone. He's off somewhere else, right? Um, and this is kind of a picture of, of, of life before Christ returns um, in, in, his, in his resurrected body, right? Um, and then as the movie progresses, it's really actually brilliant. As the movie progresses, the snow starts to melt and the sun starts to pop through the trees, and birds start to chirp. And you start to see greenery. And it's like, what's going on? And the lake that's frozen starts to crack open. And the waterfall starts to come. And, and all of a sudden, they start shedding their coats. And it's getting warmer. And everyone's like, are you noticing that the weather is changing? What's going on? Aslan is on the move. There's a change in the season. Aslan is coming. And because he's coming, this death hold that the witch has had over, over, over you know, Narnia or whatever is beginning to break. And this is what Jesus is doing. He shows up in his resurrected body for 40 days. And he says, guys, look, notice there's an inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And that inbreaking is going to come through what? Through the church, by the spirit. Wherever the church is, wherever Christ is exalted, there the kingdom is. Did you guys know the kingdom is here? Because Christ is exalted in this room. Can you feel it? When we exalt him, when we say, you're the king, the kingdom is there. Wherever Jesus was, the kingdom was there. He was in the midst of them, right? This is the reality that Jesus is bringing, the inbreaking of the kingdom. This is why we're planting a church. This is why we're in Grants Pass. This is why, this is what we're called to do as Christians. We're called to bring kingdom into our workplaces, bring kingdom into our schools, bring kingdom into our relationships, bring kingdom into our homes. And by kingdom, I mean Jesus is on the throne. He is the Lord of that place. He is the Lord of that space. You're bringing him into those places. And Jesus is saying, guys, because I have now conquered death and redeemed the world, I now took the title deed back from the enemy. I'm bringing the kingdom. Okay? And, and now we get to see it unfold. We get to see it realized is the theological term. The realizing of the kingdom of God is what we're experiencing and what we're walking now. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that amazing? We live in such an incredible time and we're still in that section of time right now. The kingdom is being realized. It's really cool. That's why, and this is an interesting verse. That's why uh, Jesus says in Luke 7, 27, he, he's talking about John the Baptist. He says, John the Baptist is the greatest guy in the world, but even the least in the kingdom is greater than John. What's he talking about? John was an old covenant guy. He didn't live to see Christ go to the cross and resurrect. He said, even the least person in the new covenant is greater than John. Even the least person that gets to live through this inbreaking of the kingdom of God and the world is greater. I think that's super cool, super interesting. 
So here we go. And I have um, seven minutes to get through this. This is great. Um, Three things had to happen before the breaking in of the kingdom could happen. So why 40 days? What are they waiting around for? Why doesn't Jesus just get on with the show, send the Holy Spirit, start the clock? What has to happen? Three things have to happen, and we see them in chapter 1. Chapter 1 is very important in the narrative of the book of Acts. Because once chapter 2 comes, the Holy Spirit's there, and it's go time, man. The the apostles become like super people. They're just like planning churches, proclaiming the gospel. But chapter 1 is important. It's important because it shows what had to happen before the inbreaking could begin, before the snow could start to melt, before the king could be on the move, right? Three things. We're going to go through them quickly. Number one, the spirit had to come. The spirit had to come. Look at verse four. While staying with them, he ordered them. He didn't suggest to them. He didn't say, hey, guys, maybe it's a good idea for you to. No, he orders them to not depart for Jerusalem. In other words, don't start your ministry. But wait, wait for what? Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. You have to wait. You guys have to wait. Don't even think about going and starting this ministry without the Holy Spirit. I can imagine the disciples are remembering a moment as he says that, the moment where Jesus went up on the hill to get transfigured and some of them stayed behind. And while they're up there, Peter, James, and John doing their thing, um, down below in the valley, the disciples get asked to cast out a demon. And they can't do it. <laughs> they, they, they fail. They just miserably fail. And, and there's just like this big commotion, this big problem. And Jesus comes down the hill and he's like, what's going on? They're like, your disciples are lame. They can't even cast out a demon. And they're like, I don't know what we did. We don't know. We just didn't know the power. It wasn't there. I can imagine they're remembering that moment when Jesus is like, don't even think about it. You guys remember what happened when you were down at the bottom of the hill? It doesn't go well. You need the power. Don't even go try to be representatives of mine unless you have the power. You need the power. Okay. Got the power. I just think of that song. You know, I can't sing, but okay. Um, they need the power of the Holy Spirit. They have to have it. Jesus told them that it was coming. You know what the Greek word for that word power is? It's a dynamos. Now, some people say oh, that's where we get the word dynamite. I actually think a better translation is that's actually where we get the word dynamic. The power of the Holy Spirit is dynamic. It's the dynamics that I lack. <laughs> I am not a dynamic person. I'm just not. Just kind of a simple, straightforward person. When the Holy Spirit comes and God starts speaking the gospel, all of a sudden I start to feel dynamics. I'm like, wow, this is cool. This is not me. This is God working. Um, this is God working. This is good news. So he said, you're going to get this dynamic power, but you've got to wait for it. It's not something that was out of the field. It was actually promised. You know, as Jesus says that, he says the, the promise of the Father. Because if you look through the Old Testament... You might write these down. I actually put them in your notes for you. Joel 2, Jeremiah 31, Isaiah 44, Ezekiel 36. All the Old Testament prophets said that the Holy Spirit was going to come. All of them said, I'll just read one of them to you. Joel 2, 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Why does he say male and female servant? Because he's saying every socioeconomic class will be filled with the spirit. Isn't that cool? Poor, rich, doesn't matter. Everyone going to be filled with the Spirit. Here we are. Isn't that cool? Okay. It was promised by the Father. It was also promised by Christ. And he was trying to get these guys to get this. He said, I'm going to send my Spirit. John 16. He said, I'm going to send my Spirit. And when my Spirit comes, he will lead you in all truth. And he will convict the world of sin. He's going to do the work for you, which is really good because the disciples really needed it. And I really need it. Okay. Um, they really needed the Holy Spirit. You guys ever notice the change in those guys? Like Peter was like foot in mouth syndrome. 
And then you get to Acts and these guys are like crazy. Like they're just like doing all kinds of like miracles. Like why? It's not because they just miraculously became awesome. They got power. Okay, they got power. That same power is available to us. Okay, that's the reality. Verse five, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not, den- not many days from now. I would really wanted to spend some time on this because there's a confusion in the church about what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. And it's really important that we understand. Okay, um, so see if we can explain it in two seconds. Um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit here does not mean that we as Christians have to go get baptized again or that we need a baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's not what that means. Um, these guys who, who, who had gotten saved or repented under John the Baptist, they had not yet received the power of the Holy Spirit yet. So they needed to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That was a unique space and time. So that doesn't know if you are saved, then you have the Holy Spirit. If you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you would be saved. Okay? This is the reality. The Holy Spirit is the one that wakens our hearts that we can be saved. So this idea that, that you get saved and then three years later, you know, just happen to be in, a, in, a, in, a, in an auditorium where the music's just right and there's pads and, and, and then you get baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's just not true. Okay, baptism of the Holy Spirit here is talking about union with Christ. It's, it's, I've got I to gotta read the text for you. Okay? Listen to this. In Acts chapter 19, verse 1 through 7, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Whose disciples are they? They're John the Baptist's disciples. So they, got, they repented under John the Baptist. They didn't even hear about Christ, right? Um, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we don't even know what that is. <laughs> we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, um, into what then were you baptized? He said, into John's baptism. What was John the Baptist's baptism? It was an old covenant, uh, old covenant baptism. It was a baptism that was symbolic of repentance. It wasn't a new covenant baptism. The, the, the picture of baptism for the believer, it's actually clarified right here. Paul clarifies it in Romans chapter 6. Okay, Romans chapter 6. He says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised... Okay, picture, if you've been baptized, picture it. When you went into the water, you were all of a sudden united to Christ's death. And then when you were raised, he says, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too might walk in the newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Salvation for the new believer, that is baptism in the Holy Spirit. When you get saved, the Holy Spirit brings you into a union with Christ's death, with Christ's resurrection, with Christ's ascension. You are now united, bonded, one with the work of Christ. That means when God looks at you, he doesn't see your lame life. He sees Christ's perfect life because you've been baptized. He doesn't see all of your mistakes, all your failures. He sees Jesus' perfection. And like Jesus rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead. That's what baptism is a picture of. It's a picture of you dying and being reborn like Christ died and was resurrected. Isn't that cool? That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't pouring out of the Holy Spirit throughout the life of the believer. That doesn't mean that there isn't the times where God will pour out his spirit on you for particular things. Okay, that, that, that's, that's clear. That's in the Bible. I'm not going to say that that's not true. But I just want to bring that up because there, there's some controversy about that within the church. So the first thing that had to happen was that the Holy Spirit had to come. The second thing that happened, had to happen was the apostles had to go. Um, I'm going to speed up here. Verse 6. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Um, they're still confused. They think he's going to build national Israel. They're like, okay, are we going to be an awesome country again? And she's just like, so much better than that, guys. So much better than a cool national Israel. 
I'm thinking global. He's thinking the universe. Okay? He's thinking about the kingdom being much bigger than that. And Jesus answers in verse seven. He said to them, is it not for you to know or it is not for you to know the times that's chronos, that's chronological time or seasons, kairos, that's time like like having a baby it just comes and you don't know when it's coming. OK, chronos and kairos that the father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, guys, put the blinders on. Let God worry about the time frame. You guys need to get to work. Okay? And that's what I would say to anyone that spends too much time obsessing over exact date when Jesus is coming back. Just stop it. It's right here. Jesus has stopped that. Do work. Go save people. When he comes back, you're not going to miss it. <laughs> it's going to be something you're going to see. He's going to come with an army. Okay? I mean, you're going you're to see this. You're not going to miss it. But you will receive power. There's that dynamos word. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses. Now, notice he doesn't say you will go witness. He says, you will be my witnesses. I don't want that, up, but it's, it's important. Some of us think of, of evangelism as, I need to go witness. I'm going to go witness at Thursday at 6 p.m. <laughs> no, you are a witness. Every part of your life, you are to witness. Amen. You are to be a witness. And what is a witness? It's just someone who's experienced something. You call a witness up to the stand. Why? Because they've experienced something. They were there when it happened, right? So you bring them up and they witness. You're someone who has experienced the reality of the risen Christ. And everywhere you go, you are a witness to that. You don't compartmentalize it. It's your life. And in order to be a witness, you have to be someone who's experienced Jesus. You have to have experienced him to be a witness. That's part of it. So Jesus is he's getting them to zone in. He's calling them. He's saying, you need to go and to be my witnesses. Notice too, and, and, and he ties this dynamic power to the mission. He doesn't say, I'm going to send my dynamic power to you so that you can have goosebumps every Sunday at church. That's not what he says. There's nothing wrong with that. He says, I'm sending my power. Why? So that you can get to work. The power comes when you step out on the mission. Have you ever noticed that? (laughs) When you step into something that's way too big for you to lift, all of a sudden you have power. A lot of people, they're like, I just don't feel the Lord. I just don't feel the Lord. I just don't feel the Lord. Go do something really, really crazy for Jesus. And you might feel the Holy Spirit. I mean, everyone wants to know, why are healings happening in China? Why are healings happening in Africa? Because these people have nothing. And they're persecuted and they need the power. And we're sitting over here and our worst problem is that my latte was too foamy. You know, like, where's the Holy Spirit? Lord, my latte is so foamy. Like, you know, I mean, step into something hard. Step into something radical and see the Holy Spirit show up. That's the reality. The Holy Spirit's mission is to exalt Christ. And it's to further the mission of the kingdom of God spreading to all the earth. That's, that's the mission. Okay. Um, Lastly, Jesus outlines the strategy of, their, um, of the book of Acts. Isn't that cool? Look, at, look again at verse uh, 8. He says, um, He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. And this, verse 8 is the outline to the book of Acts. Okay, just know that. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. He's like, It's going to start here in Jerusalem, and it's going to spread. It's going to go Judea. Or it's going to go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. When you read the book of Acts, it's exactly how it goes. It's exactly how it goes. Starts in Jerusalem. We'll read about that next week. Pentecost. And then it goes up into Samaria through Philip um, and Judea. And then um, you get into the, the second missionary journey. And it's all through the ends of the earth. Largely because of persecution. Largely because persecution broke out and the Christians all had to move away. And the gospel went with them. So that's actually the outline of the book. Um, Jesus knew exactly how his story was going to go. This is his mission, his story. Third thing that had to happen was Jesus had to ascend. I got to wrap it up. Jesus had to ascend. Look at verse nine. 
When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. You're thinking, that's weird. That's sci-fi. Um, it's actually really cool because uh, there's multiple places in the Bible where it talks about how Jesus is going to return. And guess how he's going to return? In a cloud. And, and, and that's why they say in verse 10, while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by him in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you in heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He went in a cloud. He's going to come back in a cloud. Isn't that cool? Now, why did Jesus have to leave? This is my, always my big question. Like, Jesus, why, dude? Like, you turned over the keys to these guys and us? Like, you are Jesus. Like, why didn't you stay? And why didn't you run the show? Okay? Well, there's, there's, there's four real reasons why Jesus had to go to the Father. The first one is that he had to go to the throne. He had to go to the throne to, to direct the show. Did you know that? He's directing the show through the Holy Spirit. It's not like he's tuning out on a vacation. He's like, I'm going to go take a 2,000-something-year-old vacation, and I'll come back and, you know, after I get some rest, and then I'll deal with everything. No, that's not what he's doing. He's on the throne directing the whole show through the Holy Spirit. It's his spirit. He's redirecting the whole show. He had to go to rule. Uh, secondly, he had to go to intercede. He had to go in order to, to, to intercede, to be an intercessor for us with the Father. Right now, did you know that? He's interceding for you right now. Every stupid thing you just thought, every sinful thought you just popped into your head, Jesus is interceding for you. Every, everything, that, everything that you tried to say to God and it came out wrong. Every time you didn't know how to pray. Every time that you, you, know, you fumbled. Jesus is there interceding for you to the Father. That's really cool. I'm glad for that. Um, he had to go in order to send the Holy Spirit. I always picture him like, Jesus is going to heaven. The Holy Spirit's coming down and they just high five on the way. It's like, all right, see you. You go down, I go up. Um, that's probably blasphemous, but I just, I don't know. Um, fourthly, he had to go to create a kingdom of priests. He wanted us to do the ministry. He didn't want to stay to himself. He wanted us to be in his place. And that's why you're sitting at a table right now. Because you are a kingdom of priests. Because he gave you the spirit. Because all of us have the ability to do ministry now. Because we are the church. Because we live in the new covenant. And that's why you're trusted to pour into each other. That's why we don't have to go ask the Pope what he thinks about the Bible. We can read it for ourselves. Because we have the Holy Spirit. And we have a Bible right in front of us. That's not in Latin. Amen? Praise God. Okay. So Jesus had, he had to go. So three things that we need to do if we want to see the inbreaking of the kingdom. It's the same three things. Spirit has to come. We want to see the inbreaking of the kingdom in this place. The spirit has to come. We have to invite it. We have to say, spirit, come. And that doesn't just mean goosebump feelings. I like those. But that's not the point. We have to say, Holy Spirit, come and do what you're trying to do here. Do work in us. Do work in us. Empower us for the work of the ministry. Okay? The spirit works through the word. The spirit works through the body. We've got to invite him. Notice the first thing you do in verse 14. We won't get there. They, 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 they go up into the upper room and they begin to pray. And this is what they do. And this is what brings the Holy Spirit. So we've got to invite the spirit. We've got to put Jesus on the throne in his church. He's on the throne. He's the king. He's the boss. He calls the shots. That's why we read his book and do what he says. Okay? Three, we've got to go. We've got to go. We've got to be on mission. We want to see the spirit move. We've got to be on mission. 